you know, whether it's whether it's a like a train that gets going slowly and ends up moving fast and is a large moving object, or whether it is a you know much shorter lived but burns brighter and moves faster. Like I think that's the difference between whether or not you're willing to burn out along the way. Welcome to the next frontier. I'm Nicole Dunn, co-founder and COO at a venture-backed African startup. I'm a VC investor turned startup operator, passionate about unlocking untapped entrepreneurial potential in Africa. And I am Brian Carney, a three-time entrepreneur, nonprofit founder, and angel investor based in the US. I am excited about connecting capital to entrepreneurs solving the world's toughest problems. Join us as we change the narrative on startup investing in emerging markets and help bring the yearly African VC inflows to $20 billion. super excited to have you on the show, Dan. We, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you a bit better over the last two years, and I think you have a really unique story coming from the States, coming from the country of where a lot of the capital currently flowing into Africa comes from and building a startup in Africa before VC or the startup ecosystem was really on the map anywhere uh, in Africa. And Really curious today to learn a little bit more about that story and what it was like, you know, building then and and now, you know, many years later doing it all again. So yeah, maybe we start at the beginning. You started Bionic before startups in Africa were really a thing at all. What was that like? How did that even come about in the first place? Yeah, so we started, uh, it's crazy, like Bionic started as an IT consulting company and Luke my co-founder ended up at University of Texas, where I was also in grad school. And we were working together in a classroom setting, essentially trying to figure out how to shift from a consulting company to a product company. And, you know, the idea was, you know, we had access to the mobile money networks. What could you do with that type of access? What do you, what kind of problems can you solve? You know, where do you position a product? And so we kind of went through this customer development exercise in the classroom setting and it escalated. And so what ended up happening was we basically started having conversations mostly in kind of the NGO and the development space. Uh, financial inclusion still is a big thing, but it was really starting to take off then. And PESA and Ken had really started to take off. The other mobile money networks were starting to take off in East Africa. And consistently what we heard was that we would we business would like to pay our employees via mobile money but the tools that we have to do that are garbage and so we started digging into like could we build better tools and the answer was yes so after we graduated we ended up essentially building the first version of the product in over the course of the summer after we finished and then kind of spent time with the first set of customers getting them on board we took the idea on the business competition circuit in the U.S. kind of like MBA system, and that was how we raised like the first little bit of capital. Like it wasn't much. I want to say probably total like 20 to 30 grand. That's fascinating. How did you actually make that case? Because that would not be an easy thing to explain to the average person sitting in on, on a VC board. Not at all. And there were times when that particularly in Texas. In t- at the time, Austin was a great tech community. It was not a good place to be building something in a continent where people had no idea or experience working on. One of my favorite moments, like when we were pitching at UT was, 
we got through the pitch and it was relatively short, you know, ten, eight, 10 minutes. And then there was time for Q and a, and like this guy raises his hand and he is basically like the archetype of what you picture, like an old Texas oil man to be. I don't think he was wearing a bolo tie, but in my head, he certainly was he raised his hand. is like, son, aren't there like people with guns and stuff that are going to keep you from doing business there? And I don't have a brain mouth filter. So like my response was like, honestly, sir, I'm not from Texas. And that's the way I feel about being here. So like there's there was just such a disconnect between what the reality was and what people understood that it was really hard to get sort of what we were doing. It like, you know, it was before Venmo, it was before PayPal really took off. So like explaining mobile money to people was like where we started. And it's like, oh, we're explaining this consumer product, and then we have to take you into this world of how we're making it work for businesses. And it was like a complicated arc to go through and people didn't totally understand it. The ones that did were actually in the development sector. So we, we ended up pitching to a bunch of folks that were, Oh my goodness. What's the name? I'm trying to think with, we were in Portland, Oregon and at their business plan competition circuit and a bunch of folks I can't remember if it's like Mercy Corps. I think it's Mercy Corps that's based there. So you're like a bunch of former Mercy Corps execs that had spent time in like whatever Latin American and African and Southeast Asian country. They're like, oh, that's a great idea. And so like that's where it actually kind of picked up. And we ended up, I ended up moving to DC after that. It was either that or Kampala. Now, all that being said, there is a building a good business and having a good business plan and being able to present on those things are two entirely different things. And so it was, you know, uh, it, it was good to learn how to pitch, but then we had to relearn how to actually build a business once we started doing it. Yeah. So what was next? You you raised this 20K, you make the move to DC, and then then what? And, and then it was a couple years of pain is probably the way I would describe it. You know, it took us it took us another probably three to four months to get the next couple of customers on. And then probably somewhere between six months to maybe nine months to get to like 10 customers. And I think that any rational human being that was looking at the economics of that business in terms of how long it took us to onboard those customers and how much money we were making from them would have said, this is dumb. Stop doing this. And I think we're both stubborn and stupid. I don't know what the proportion between those two things are, but what, like we just kept going and continued to build and, you know, eventually payouts become two-way payments because we had a bunch of agricultural customers that we started working with that were saying, hey, we're selling goods in the field to our farmers and we don't want our staff or farmers having to deal with cash. Can you set up something for us? We're like, yeah, we can do that. Um, and so it became two-way payments and then it became an API. And then we started expanding to more networks and more countries. Um, but we went from, we raised a little bit of friends and family money. Luke was actually working a second, basically a second full-time job for the first probably year and a half, two years. And we didn't raise any real external money until 2015. Um, and it was a couple of folks, like a, call it a family, like a multifamily office. And then some folks who had built this uh, like SMS uh, sort of delivery platform uh, and done a bunch of work all over DC based, worked all over emerging markets, mostly sold, sold to USAID for, you know, ag extension programs. And so had relationships with MNOs. And the idea was that we could sort of piggyback off of those relationships to expand. Um, that idea actually didn't work, but we got a little bit of money in the door. And 
you know, continued to build out the teams, kept growing slowly. And that's probably 2013 to 2015. Um, and at some point in there, I think Nicole, I think I've had this conversation with you, but at some point in there, there was like 12, there was $12 and some change in both my personal checking account and Bionic business bank account. Uh, so it was, it was a high tolerance for a low burn lifestyle. Yeah, that was actually going to be my question. Particularly Washington, D.C. is one of the most expensive places to live in the world. So how were you making ends meet during that time? So I was lucky enough to live with my brother for the first six months that I was there. And the I was living with my brother and he had just gotten married about two years beforehand. It was very unclear how well my sister-in-law and I were going to get along inhabiting the same space. And it went better than anyone expected. I'm very grateful for their support and they have continued to support me throughout the years. Um, but at some point, I think my sister-in-law turned to my brother and said, like, is this going to last forever? Like, we're going to start having kids soon. And so I ended up I ended up moving in with like a few friends and kind of like running around from place to place. And a, a couple things. One is like managed to stay relatively cheap and I accumulated down on my credit cards. You know, I probably ended up with like 25 to 30 K in credit card debt essentially to fund my life and took a little bit of a draw, but it was probably like one and a half to two grand a month when we had money in our account. And so it was definitely not, you know, like it, it, it and it was a time in DC when there was, quite a few startup events. And I feel like I lived off of free pizza and beer three times a week. It was a really useful, that was a really useful kind of social scene there for me. But yeah, it was fun. And you know, like I lived with some some good friends and got to live in the city. It was definitely a bit too expensive, but I would say eventually managed to make it work a little bit better. I mean, I think that's part of the journey that people from the outside just go, you're crazy. Like, why would you put yourself through that? You're clearly smart. Like, why get to the point where you've got $12 in your bank account? And what do you even do in that moment, right? You're literally thinking about now survival. Like, what did you do in that situation? Yeah, I mean, part of it's, I think that there was a couple of things. One is like, I'm lucky enough and privileged enough that I always had a safety net, you know, like if I needed to and like actually was not able to support myself, my brother would have been like moved back in for a few months, you know, like I had that as a fallback, which I think let me take risks. And then there's definitely a bit, which is, you know, like the privilege that I came from is different than where Luke came from. And the ability for me to take that risk is very different than him who had to work a second full-time job to do it. So like there's an interesting contrast in terms of like who can start companies and not that's been fun to explore over the last couple of years, but like having that safety net is super helpful. The other piece is that I think eventually the business actually started making progress. You know, like I think that we saw something working. It wasn't, wasn't, you know, like hyper growth, but I think it was growing consistently and we were, and I was enjoying it and we were continuing to build things that had value in a way that I think it was worth putting up with it. And we did. And so that, you know, again, like high tolerance for pain, it's good to have a safety net. And I think that, you know, we were making things work. When you started to see that, that growth, what what was the catalyst or the time when you knew it would become a big company or something that could really scale? Because it sounds like at the beginning, it was 
not that you fell into it because you did a lot of product research, you did a lot of market research, you knew what you were trying to build. But there's always kind of that question where you're like, uh, is this actually going to work? When did that flip for you? The moment when it flipped is when we got the contract signed by the Red Cross. And we ended up we ended up getting all of their business. And it was, you know, I felt like we had no no right to get that quality of a customer, but managed to get that contract signed, executed, and deliver on it in a way that I'm like, you know what? There's enough potential here, and we have a few kind of brand name customers under our belt that we can then leverage and go out and get more. That like this is like something can be built here that is really interesting. At the same time, I think that we also saw the networks that we were making viable in Uganda and like started to explore in Kenya pop up all over. And so from a geographical perspective, there was potential for us to move into other markets in a way that, you know, became appealing all around. And so that's that's probably when we're like, you know what, there's something that can be built that's quite big here. And we started to be able to execute, which, you know, sort of changed the equation for us. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. And then as it started to grow, tell us a little bit about the acquisition and, and what that looked like, who approached who. Tell me about that. You know, I'd spent about five years, had gone through pain. I think, you know, I had spent a bunch of time essentially back and forth between East Africa and DC. And I think, you know, this is my personal life. So like my now ex-wife and life were in DC and my work life were in East Africa and reconciling those two things were really difficult and traveling back and forth. I think just the grind of doing it, like I burnt out for a bunch of reasons. The other thing that ended up happening is that my mom who passed away in 2019 from cancer had been sick for quite a while. And like in hindsight, it makes sense, but she had increasingly been getting more and more sick over that time. And I think I had been gone. And so like all of those things together led to me burning out. And so at the end of 2017, like I was just not in a good place, like really unhappy, not enjoying work. It was a struggle for us, a struggle for me to get stuff done. I think that interestingly enough, like me taking a step back, my partner, Luke might say out of neglect, but I think kind of purposefully because it seemed like I was leaving at the end of the year. You know, I started to take a step back. Other people started to take over stuff and we managed to recruit people to kind of backfill and build up the organization. So at the end of 2017, I left my day-to-day role at Bionic and then stayed on as a board member, helped out where I could, and then kind of spent time consulting and then with family and yeah, spent time, spent time with my mom, which was really nice. Yeah, that's that's a blessing that not everyone gets. So that's that's great that you're able to make that that switch. I, it does bring up one question for me, and we'll we'll kind of dive into this because I think there's something important here for the audience to to hear and learn before we go into the you know standard fun stuff of acquisitions. What do you think that it is necessary to put in the type of work that does burn someone out to grow a business like this, or do you think something with your experience and in hindsight, it's something that you can do without that burnout? That's a good question. I actually don't know. I think that, I think to some extent that burnout and work, I think that I have more of a balance now for sure. Is growth going to be a compromise to that? Maybe. I think it's the the time frame that you're looking at it. 
you know, whether it's, whether it's a, like a train that gets going slowly and ends up moving fast and is a large moving object, or whether it is a, you know, much shorter lived, but burns brighter and moves faster. Like, I think that's the difference between whether or not you're willing to burn out along the way. I think fundamentally there were actually things flawed with our business. Like I do think that we just didn't make enough money for any customer. And that's one of the reasons why it didn't grow fast enough, but the burnout, you know, I don't know. Like I actually think it's really hard to have a personal life and a professional life, particularly running a startup. And that is a really, really difficult thing to balance. Uh, And like, to be honest, I think look at it objectively and like, you know what? I probably didn't do that well. And like, I think that everyone's happier now in terms of where we are, but it wasn't great along the way. And you know, my relationships were like suffered because of it. So I don't know, like maybe, maybe that's necessary. I do think that people think it's necessary. I think that the, particularly the venture world almost demands it. And I don't know that the, I, I don't know that everyone is on the same side of the table and the incentives are aligned for like really talented people to build big businesses over the long term. versus, you know, how do we, build it up and then make it someone else's problem when it's not flowing cash or running profitably, or, you know, I've raised $300 million and I don't have a viable business because I've been funding user growth. Like there's a whole bunch of reasons why, like, I think that those things don't align. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know that me burning out was necessary for our success. I think it helped that I was willing to spend the time and like willing to sacrifice things along the way, but I think it could have been done better. You make a good point there around the expectation gap between VCs and then entrepreneurs actually trying to build a sustainable business that solves a real user problem. Do you think that in some ways is harder for entrepreneurs building in Africa? Is it is it harder for entrepreneurs building on the continent to come up with sustainable use cases and viable businesses? No, is it harder to... Is there a bigger gap between VC expectations and realities facing founders on the ground? I think from from investors that don't necessarily know the pace at which things move and what is necessary to get things done. Yes, there is definitely a gap. You know, that's going back to the guy who's like, you know, are there people with guns and stuff that are trying to keep you from building the business to like literally have to building the infrastructure that you need to build what you're trying to like implement for your customers. You know, I feel like like we've talked about this a bit before where like you have to explain like what payment orchestration is to try to figure out how to launch this product into the market where like in some places you just don't have to deal with that. You know, we were we were web scraping MTN's agent interface for the first year and a half of our operation to give you an idea of how we got up and running. And alongside every four to six weeks, we were asking them for API access saying, hey, we have a great product for the cost, your business customers that are using mobile money and really want to. And we're having a bit of a hard time keeping it up and running. What ended up happening was they, so because we're using the agent interface, there's like some weird quirks with like the mobile money networks, but we were essentially operating on a different system and earning commissions for every shilling that we were putting on as opposed to paying for every payment we were putting on. And because we were operating on this commission-based system, they got wind of what we were doing somehow. It escalated to the CEO of MTN Uganda, and he called our entire team in and basically said, you all have been messing with us and cheating us out of our money and why don't we report you to the central bank and we're like wait a minute like first off 
look at our commission line. Has it ever been cashed out? The answer was no. And so like we hadn't been trying to game the system. And also here are the receipts for every four to six weeks. We've been asking your tech team for API access because of the value that we're adding to your, the customers that are using your platform. Like people don't understand that that is the infrastructure that you have to build and how you have to operate to like launch a product that would be really simple. Like go to Stripe, go to Plaid, like go and build this out in a way that's a hell of a lot easier. And like, it's why when people say like, why don't you just blitz scale this business? It makes me want to kill myself because it's just so out of line with like what the reality is that it's just not. Yes, there's a gap. It frustrates me endlessly when I talk to people who don't really understand what it takes to build. So that, yeah, that's a long answer to your question. For sure. I mean, we've chatted about this before. I completely relate. I'm now going into November and December in South Africa, where every corporate shuts down for two months and does not respond to an email and having to explain to international investors that revenue is going to look flat for the next two months, because that's just how it is, right? So these are the the quirks (laughs) of building in, in these markets. And as you say, there's huge opportunity and your business is a great example of that. Like before anyone was really thinking about payouts, innovation or disbursements, which has now become a growing theme across the payments landscape. And, you know, I think it'd be great to talk a little bit about the MFS story, but there is a very different way of doing business, I guess, than other parts of the world that is still very much evolving. I mean, you were one of the first examples in the African context of an Africa-Africa acquisition, which has since been a growing phenomenon, especially now in the past couple of years, where on the one hand, there was greater capital inflow into selected startups in the continent. And at the same time, more recently, there's been a pullback. So there's consolidation happening in the market. How did that MFS acquisition come about appreciating you'd stepped out of the business by that point? Yeah, so I was I stayed on as a board member all the way through the acquisition. So I got to see and like Luke and I are still very good friends. I think there was a period where we were a bit rocky for the six months after I left, but we were still very much working together, like not on a day to day basis, but anytime we needed things or needed help and I was still still on the board. I think that do me a favor, remind me to look and whether or not this is still under an NDA and I shouldn't say this and you need to cut it from the system. But I actually think we first met MFS when an investment banker approached us to see if we were essentially available for a fire sale. I think that they were looking for folks that had built out, you know, kind of complementary payment products. And so this was probably 2017 and we had gotten we had gotten an offer beforehand from a from another company that we didn't end up taking and so like this investment banker approached us and said hey we're working with this company they've done a lot of really good work like who are these people and then we ended up having sort of initial conversation and we never got past the point where it's like okay this is an interesting business but it needs to grow before it makes sense for mfs to purchase it um so that's how i think we first met dare and the team and got connected to them and then fast forward a few years later. So the, this conversation, I'm not going to take all the credit for this, but I met Rachel, who was, I think, co-CEO at the time in Cape Coast Castle in Ghana. I was working on a consulting project and she was I was wearing um, 
sunglasses that I think had State Farm on the side. And she hadn't seen like a State Farm insurance logo in something like 10 years because she had been living in Joburg for a decade. And so we just got to chatting and she's like, oh, you're one of the Bionic guys. And so what ended up happening is like we reconnected with the team and got just got like a little bit more plugged in in the beginning. This was like April, May of 2019. And over the last couple of years, so after I left, this is not, this is probably because of, but after I left, what happened to the business is it actually started to grow pretty quickly. So over like 2018, the the transaction volume, you know, went from like sub 1 million a month to 10 million a month to probably 15 to 20. And we went from like minimal amounts of revenue to about like one and a half, like probably one and a half to 2 million sort of like annualized revenue in like mid 2019. And so we were positioned well at that point. And like enough people had kind of raised money, like Paystack, Flutterwave, a couple of the Nigerian businesses as well, like that there was more capital flowing in. So like we were in a position to go out and probably raise like a good Series A and really kind of fund it, fund the company and have the team in place that wasn't, you know, us living on our $12 bank account and $35,000 of credit card debt. Like we were just in a different position as a business. And so... We were going out and Karina was the CEO. This is the, the person that kind of got brought in to replace me. She did an incredible job building out and managing the team over the, the preceding two years after I left. And she was leading this fundraise process with Luke. And so we were going out and having conversations and MFS was starting to make investments. I can't remember how much money they had raised at the time, but they they were they were starting to gear up the strategy of like, let's acquire properties that are complementary and bring them all together. And so we went out to go raise a series A, Dare, who's super smart and knows when he sees a good deal and is a good negotiator, essentially realized that he was going to get a better deal by acquiring the company than investing up one to $2 million at like whatever valuation the series A was going to be to, to get it. So like, so begins a negotiation process where like we went out to go raise money and in September of 2019, he said, how about we look at an acquisition? And so we started having this conversation about what, what it would look like. We got a signed term sheet at the end of 2019. I think it was December of 2019 when we we're like, okay, these are the terms. Now we're going to go into due diligence. Our estimated closing date is March 31st of 2020. And so exactly, yeah, that's great timing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you real you don't like you don't realize what's coming around the corner, but <laughs> I don't know how you're doing swearing, but holy shit, it was a good one. It, like, <laughs> so we signed this term sheet. We're like, we're going to close by March 31st. We're like, there's no way it's going to close by March 31st, but like maybe April, May, we'll sort out the details. The laundry list of stuff that we needed to do because we had entities in Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Tanzania. We had partnerships in Ghana, Nigeria, Malawi, and Zambia at the time. And we weren't a big company. Like I don't even think we had an internal compliance person at the time. Like we weren't, we weren't big. We weren't well structured for this. Like we didn't have auditors. And they were talking about buying the company for cash and taking that process through. Needless to say, things got delayed. So we were like working through this laundry list and and we're and come say, basically St. Patrick's Day of 2020, the world shuts down. And a couple of things, the biggest sticking points were actually dealing with some of the regulators. 
perspective. So one of the conditions on closing was that we needed the Tanzanian Competition Authority, whatever that regulator was, to essentially give us a ruling that that the global acquisition wasn't anti-competitive for the Tanzanian environment. And we had a license application in progress with the Tanzanian Central Bank that was increasingly getting delayed. You know, like they, they said, here's the yardstick. We jumped over it and then it increasingly moved for a year and a half. And so this requirement, the sort of stipulation of the acquisition, come, you know, March 2020, we say, okay, submit this. And then they shut down. Like the entire central bank in the Tanzanian government shut down for two or three months. And they weren't accepting applications. They weren't reviewing anything. And it delayed the entire process. And if there's anything that I remember taking away from this, it's like it's not over till cash is in the bank. And the... You know, one of the things that I that just kept happening was like they weren't reviewing this application. And when they finally opened back up, they said, yeah, feel free to submit this application in June. We submit the application in June of 2020 and they say, oh, there's a 90 day moratorium where we don't review any applications to make sure you're actually serious. And we're just like, what? Like, okay. so now we're into September. And then in September, one of their analysts calls us and says, hey, can you help me write this report estimating market share of the Tanzania and bulk payment industry? And it's just one of these moments where you're just like, sure, like happy to do that. Could we have done this six months ago? The answer was no. And so like COVID, like COVID threw a wrench in these things and where we were just like, man, this isn't like the entire world, like the economy starting to tank. We don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know if there's still going to be capital when it's actually time for them to fund it. Meanwhile, we announced the acquisition of June of 2020. That day actually felt like my birthday. Like it was one of those things where like it went public. I wrote kind of like a medium piece that went along with it. And for three or four days, just proceeded to get calls from people in the ecosystem that like were like adjacent to us or affiliated. And it just like it really felt like it was just like this massive celebration of something that hadn't really happened before. And it was really, really cool to be a part of. And so they, you know, that felt really amazing. At the same time, there's this like internal panic of just like this deal is going to fall through. Like we are not going to get paid. Coven's going to kill it. There isn't going to be the budget for it. Like all of the things that can go wrong seem like they were going to. And there were some other, like there were other things to try to figure out, right? Like everyone in the payment ecosystem at some point gets hacked and how you figure out how to deal with that and like how you take that on and like where that liability lies, like, you know, is one of the stickier issues that we had to figure out the, but that's public information. So I don't really care just, so you know, but there, there were things that were just like constantly delaying this, that were just like, it's going to fall through. It's going to fall through. Like it's not over till it's, till it's over and finally got this across the line and got paid in December. So it ended up being total a 15 month process from start to finish from like when we sort of got an initial term sheet to money in the bank. And that's, that's how that acquisition happened. And it was like, it, I mean, it was great. Like it's like, if you can sell a company, do it because it's phenomenal. You know, it's like one of these really, really cool experiences you get to go through and it made it, you know, it was one of the earlier acquisitions. I think that Paystack got announced Shortly afterwards, Flutterwaves, you know, whatever, $100, $200 million unicorn round got announced shortly afterwards. A bunch of people got secondaries out of that round that ended up running funds. Like there was just sort of a lot of positive momentum going into 2021 from all of these things. And I think, you know, like we were one of the smaller 
pieces of that total pie. But it ended up changing the dynamic over the next probably year and a half, I guess, two years in terms of what it was like to start a company in the African tech ecosystem. Wow, that's uh, that's a really crazy story. And honestly, all things considered, 15 months, not terrible during COVID. There's, that's that's pretty reasonable. I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess uh, a question I have is, when thinking back on, you know, the Texan with the bolo tie, and for anyone from Texas listening, you're great people. Um, I'm but sorry. You know your, yeah. uh, you know your stereotypes. <laughs> for if you look at that, and you look at the people telling you that you need to blitz scale, do you think that maybe the you know, kind of back to Nicole's earlier question, there might be a bit of a gap in understanding with the speed and scale? Because if you look at what you've been talking about, you didn't raise a massive amount of money. So anyone who did put money in had a really good exit on a percentage basis would be my assumption. Yeah. But it might not be a billion dollar exit like they, you know, are touting. So what do you think there needs to be a change or there needs to be more focus on good exits that are not raising super dilutive capital? that are building this ecosystem and, and growing it kind of from the bottom up? So the honest answer is I actually don't know. Well, like ask me again in five years to see if any of these companies have been funded have been a billion dollar exit. Like that, that, like the proof will be in the pudding on that front. You know, we had investors that were really happy with a multiple on their money. Like everyone, everyone made money. You know, we raised less than half a million dollars over the life of the company. And we were in a, we raised money at a time when like, you know, valuations were not, inflated in any way. And that gave us options on the other end of this to be able to turn sort of going out of raising the Series A into a really viable, good acquisition for everyone involved. And so, you know, they, I think there are opportunities for businesses like that to be built. I think if there are 50 to $100 million exits on the continent, they should be celebrated. I think that running, you know, like power law returns for a venture fund over the last 10 years probably wasn't a great bet. You know, unless you were taking sort of secondaries out of Flutterwave or Paystack and like that was your big exit. Like, I think there are some, but all of the lagging, like if you look at sort of the five-year lag between Africa and Southeast Asia, it lines up almost identically in terms of like number of unicorns built, funding went in, exits. And so, you know, the things that have been built in the last five years over in Southeast Asia, Gojek, Grab, Martha, one of my favorites is... My God, the fisheries company that I can't remember the name of, but, you know, they raised $30 million. Like, you know, and this is amazing, like daughter of a fisherman who decided to try to like build an e-fisheries business, e-fisheries in Indonesia. Like a lot of these really massive businesses, they're different dynamics, you know, like you have 200 million people in one country with large, you know, kind of a large rising middle class. It's much harder to aggregate that on the continent, but like people still will be making money and investing even with the pullback. Now I actually think is probably the best time to start writing checks into the continent because valuations are low and the people that are building are probably doing it for the right reasons instead of, you know, paper net worth and inflated egos. And I think that's going to be a really, really good thing to be a part of. I think I answered your question. I mean, it's interesting. You've spoken a lot about the journey and how much pain you had to endure professionally and personally, and yet here you are today doing it all again. Why? I'm a really shitty employee, Nicole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are enough 
big problems to try to solve and businesses that can be built that it's worth doing. It's fun. It's exciting. The grass is always greener on the other side when it comes to whatever else you could be doing. And so, you know, like having ownership and being able to build a team and try to solve these kind of bigger, nastier, more complex problems that require us to kind of navigate the regulatory environment in ways that our biggest challenge right now is regulatory. You know, it's like, how do we get the licensing and the regulatory clearance to build what we want to build? And that is a very difficult thing. But you know what, if we do it, first off, it's going to be fun. And two, it'll be a much bigger business than the first time around. So, you know, I like it. Like I spent a couple of years consulting. I was investing, advising, like on the other side of things. And I got bored. I think it just wasn't like not having the ownership and not having the team that we can build. Like I started to not like lose my edge because I actually think I got it back. Like I think I was able to recover from everything that had happened and get get back to the point where like my brain was focused on solving problems. And solving problems means actually executing and building something as opposed to telling people what they can build or like writing checks in companies for other people that are trying to build things. So that's that's why. And but some days, you know, sometimes sometimes I'm just like I should should just be consulting right now and just not having to worry about whatever it is I'm doing and spend every day on my kayak out on the water. Yeah, me me and you both. Is it is it easier the second time? No, I think that we're is it some things are easier. There, so I mean, I told you we raised less than half a million dollars over the life of the company. I mean, the amount of capital that was available to us being second time founders and having a successful exit, I mean, we could have raised four to five times that straight out of the gate with no product built. To me, that's insane because you're raising a lot of money building out teams without any type of proof. And like the costs aren't proportionate to like what you need to actually test and validate and move on to the next phase. I will say I get criticized for taking that risk-based approach a lot. Like when we talk about power law exits, like when I speak to investors, like I know that I'm not perceived as someone that's going to be building something massive because I think about it in terms of a risk calculated approach. And like I know when like, you know, leaving money on the table was dumb. Like I should be egotistical enough that I think I should be worth twenty five million dollars and you should write me a five million dollar check. There's a sociopath button that I could turn on and off. It might be useful. But like, you know, that's. <laughs> like we don't live in that world. So like some things are easier. Raising capital right now, maybe not right now, but over the last two years was easier. The infrastructure, I know that you don't always want to hear it because I know your life isn't always easier on this front, but like building on the infrastructure is a bit easier. Like there are better APIs. There's clear licensing. Like there weren't even PSP licenses when we got going. We were agents of the telco. That was our relationship with MTN and Airtel. We were the same as the, the guy on the corner taking money in and cashing people in and out. That's it. Like, and it's, and that's why we were using the agent interface. Like, you know, it's, it's come so far and it, some things are easier. Like, you know, you got licenses, you can operate. There's clear sort of regulatory frameworks for some things, you know, APIs, infrastructure. I think that that's become easier. Like, you know, opening up a bank account in Kenya took me a couple of days. I think it took us three or four months the last time around. Like there, so there are some like really practical operational things that are just much easier this time around. I think there's more talent. I think there's more attention. I think that there's more, you know, there's like more resources that you can bring into this sphere to try to solve these problems. Like, is it easier sometimes at the same time? Like it's still, there's still, I, like 
I have those days and I'm just like, why am I doing this? And is it worthwhile? So I don't know. Yeah, that uh, that's interesting. It's a mixed bag of an answer. No, that's great. That's great. So we're getting pretty close to the end of our time, but I have one burning question that I've wanted to ask since I first jumped on this line. And it is, what is it about being an acorn farmer that interests you? <laughs> I've seen that a few places and I have to know. So I think one of one of the things that I'm really good at is connecting like disparate data points and trying to make sense of it. And so this is like one of the rabbit holes that I've gone down and I haven't been able to get out of because it's a problem. It's something that I read. So have you ever read Guns, Germs, and Steel? I have. I'm actually a history major. I love that book. So the chapter in the book where he talks about how different plants got domesticated and he talks about how, you know, like the almond tree, like back in the day was really sour and inedible. And, it, and like one gene flips in an ancient almond tree and it flips from a, a sour to an edible almond. And over time, genetic variation and humans finding eating something and like throwing it out, saying this doesn't taste good. Like humans came up to a genetically sort of altered, like mutated ate almond tree, ate it, said this tastes great. And that's how you got a domesticated almond. Same with the sweet pea. Like uh, the original one, like when it was ripe, it burst open, the peas went to the ground, they germinated and one gene flips and the peas stay closed, a human finds it, eats it. So this is sweet and nutritious and you get a domesticated pea. Oak trees are everywhere and acorns, like, you know, they're, in, but he talks about how an a oak tree has never been domesticated because the genetic the genetic makeup of an oak tree is so complicated that either through just like th there hasn't been a human that has come along like that one oak tree that has enough mutations or enough genetic variation that's created a sweet acorn or it's just like statistically improbable that they would ever happen. And so the question that I kind of asked in my head was like, you know, can you do something with acorns that would turn them into a type of commodity crop? And part of this is actually growing, not like growing up, but like I went to school in Indiana. The place is a giant fucking cornfield. Like it is corn and soy and wheat as far as you can see from the Appalachians to Denver. And it's a like it's an annual plant that requires nitrogen fertilizers. It destroys the land like it destroys the water with the runoff. Like everything about sort of that type of agriculture is essentially fucking our environment. And so this this idea that got planted in my head was like, if you can figure out how to domesticate the acorn. And so like, this is again, where like, I've just finished up Codebreaker, which is Walter Isaacson's biography of uh, Jennifer Doudna and who invented CRISPR. So like, it's been a, like an interesting idea and like doctors and the families, like a kind of like the idea of CRISPR is a really interesting one. So the question became like, like what do we and don't we know about sort of the genetic makeup of like acorn and oak trees that could ever be made like could you ever make a sweet acorn like i have spent more time than probably most humans like digging into and trying to connect this thread and so like there's there's like really interesting like koreans and the native population in the u.s like used acorns as kind of like staple crops like it they every Basically, in World War One or World War II, every Korean village had a stand of oak trees that basically supplemented a failing rice crop. You know, like there'd be a flood or a drought and the rice wouldn't produce. And what they did was they ate acorns. Like nutrition-wise, it is a very sustainable thing, but there's tannins in it that you need to leach out to make it edible. Sorry, this rant is way longer than you all no, wanted. No, this is incredible. I appreciate <laughs> all humor in me. And so, and so the idea of becoming an acorn farmer is like, can you build... Can you build a different type of food system that doesn't sort of 
that doesn't kind of fuck over the environment. And like this idea of commodity, like how you build like more sustainable commodity crops and agriculture, like it's going to be necessary to figure out how to feed the population. We need to figure out how to mitigate climate change. And if you plant forests instead of corn, wheat and soy, like the world's going to be better. And so this is a much longer term idea. You know, I think this is like a 20, 30, 40 year project. And my guess is that what I do next will look something like this. And that's where being an acorn farmer has come from that was awesome (laughs) i'm glad i'm glad i asked that question that is not where i thought it was going to go i thought it was going to be more of a i don't know like pasture is pork eating acorns or something i love this (laughs) also delicious but (laughs) i love this perfect so i think that is just a fantastic place to stop Thank you for jumping on the call. This has been delightful. It's been a great conversation. I'm sure we'll have many more on the pod over time. Thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Nicole. That's it for today. Do you want to learn more about investment opportunities in Africa? Go to nextfrontierpod.com for more episodes, new insights, and the latest trends in the African startup world.